Let's start with prayer. Father, as we, as we continue our approach to you and we find ourselves sitting at your feet, uh, may we not be in our hearts sort of running around and doing a million things and uh, sort of resisting the urge to check our phone and to think of what's happening next. Um, Martha got rebuked for that. Help us to sit at your feet and pay attention to you and what you have to say to us through your word. So quiet our hearts. Help us to live in this moment right now to be present to you so that you can be present to us and do a work. We ask you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, We're continuing to move through the book of Genesis, and when you read the account that we're about to read, this next phase in Abraham's life as he's an old man, I'm on back here. Um, As you read this phase in his life, uh, this little account seems like it just has some sort of mundane details about how his life is sort of coming to an end, and it's easy to skip. You know, if you're reading through devotionally through Genesis, easy to kind of skip, skip past this one. Um, and I almost did that when I was mapping out the sermons. I almost said, you know what, let's not camp out here, let's go to the next one. And really late in the game, I, I thought, you know, we need to do it. The reason why is because it deals with a difficult topic, death, how to deal with death, dealing with this thing that we don't like to think about, we don't like to talk about. You know, as a pastor, as a, as a preacher, I think I've only ever really went after this topic with a laser focus at funerals, which is a, which is a great thing because at funerals, I give the gospel, doesn't matter if the deceased person was a Christian or not. If they ask me to do it, I'm going to give the gospel. And I'm going to talk about life and death and, and what that means and how to survive that transition uh, in Christ. Um, I'm going to make that really clear. But at that funeral, as much as I'm pouring the gospel out to those that are gathered there, it's already too late for a couple of people. Obviously, the person that's in the casket. It's too late for them to hear what I'm saying when I'm at the funeral. But for those that lost, that were closest to the person in the casket, now suddenly realizing death is here, I've lost this loved one, how do I deal with this huge hole in my life? The spouse, the child, the mom or the dad. We need to be prepared to deal with death before that happens. Whether it's our own death or someone really close to us. How do we mourn? How do we grieve? Or how do we prepare ourselves to leave this, this portion of our lives? And so rather than waiting just for funerals, let's, let's deal with it. Let's look at it. Because for the Christian, it shouldn't be a scary stare-down contest with death. It shouldn't. And when we want to look at that in the book of Genesis, please turn to the first book of the Bible. We're in Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23. It's a, a very detailed passage. It doesn't have five steps to deal with death. It doesn't have three tips on how to mourn. No, it's an account. It's a narrative. It's a story that relays how Abraham deals with the death of Sarah. 
Uh, before we start thinking about all of Sarah's failures, you know, the kind of things that she suggested to Abraham to do and kind of laughing when the angel said that they would do something. and she, Her failures are recorded. But you remember when you get to the book of Hebrews, she is a woman of faith. And Paul explained to the churches that he planted that Sarah is the model for being a wife because she had faith and she followed her husband in faith. So she's not to be thrown under the bus by any means. Sarah's to be mourned. She lived 127 years, verse 1. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. In the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah. And to weep for her. And Abraham rose up. From before his dead. And said to the Hittites. I am a sojourner. A traveler. Right? He doesn't belong in this land. But he's come from somewhere else. He's moving through. And a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place. That I may bury my dead out of my sight. When he says out of my sight, we use that term like just get out of my sight. He just means a proper burial would mean that she's covered either in a tomb or, you know, uh, somehow covered appropriately so that she's, her corpse isn't rotting in plain view. That's what he means. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now you have to imagine these families would purchase caves and that cave would be a family tomb and they would carve out spots for the bodies to be laid as family members are deceased and they would sort of fill up the tomb. What they're telling him is, we're not going to sell you property, but we'll just let you put your dead wife in one of our tombs. None of us are going to deny you that. Pick the one you want, the nicest one that's fine. We're not going to sell you one of our tombs. We're not going to give you ownership of land. And uh, continues in verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me, in your presence as property for a burying place. I don't want to borrow a tomb. I want my own. I want our own family place that's ours. And then he gave them a suggestion. How about that one down there? He's got a, he's got a nice spot at the end of his field. I don't think he'd miss it. In your presence, let me ask him if we can do this. Verse 10, now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites. Why does it say Hittite so much? They're not Israelites. These are not his people. And that's why this is difficult. He's in a land not his own. In the hearing of all the Hittites, verse 10, of all who went in at the gate of his city, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. This is Ephron talking to Abraham. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. In other words, purchase it, have it. It's yours. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field 
Because right? Ephron is like, don't just take the cave. I'm going to give you the entire field. And Abraham's saying, well, then I'll purchase the entire field. I don't, I don't want a handout. I don't want this for free. Let me purchase the entire field. So Abraham uh, tells him, I give the price of the field, verse 14, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Well, look it up. 400 shekels of silver. That's a lot of money for them. Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession In the presence of the Hittites. Now he possesses a piece of the land of Canaan. And the promise is happening. In the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. Now in verse 19. After this Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah. East of Mamre that is Hebron. In the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place. By the Hittites. Why do they keep repeating where it is to the east of that and this this specific place? Uh, well, that place still exists today, and there's a Muslim mosque on top of it. It's viewed as a holy place. It's viewed as a, as a place to sojourn and pay your respects to Sarah uh, and the patriarchs. Uh, so they knew there where this was. This was an actual place. Now, when we look at this, and we realize that. Most of these verses, almost all of these verses, this entire chapter deals with the sort of what would seem like an everyday sort of transaction between a guy trying to purchase a lot for his wife to bury her. And that's why it's kind of easy to skip. But that's a lot of ink, right? That's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, real estate on Scripture's page to spend on just... Hey, how about I pay for this? Oh, don't buy it from me. What is it to you? Oh, I want this cave. I don't want, I don't want just a tomb. I want this cave. And it's the Hittites. And what is going on with all of this? Well, all of those uh, details are pointing out how Abraham went out of his way to make sure that Sarah was buried in a place that's in Canaan and not somewhere else. Now, normally what you would do is you would go back home some people still do this today. You might have an aunt or an uncle that's not really from here. And they, they, one of their wishes is when I die, please bury me back with my fathers or bury me in this lot next to my grandmother or something like that. Or because that's where I'm really from. I'm not from Chicago or something like that. Well, you remember Abraham is not from Canaan. He's from Haran. And what you would normally do is you would travel back to Haran and, and bury your dead there so that your family has a place to pay respects to their relative that passed away. But what Abraham is thinking is, this is, that's not my place anymore. My descendants, when they go to visit somebody, they're going to be in Canaan. Even though it's full of Hittites right now, I know that the Lord promised me through Isaac that this place is going to be full of my people. And once this place is full of my people, they're going to want to easily visit their matriarch, right, here. They're not going to want to go to a 
a land that wasn't promised to them. They want to be in the land that was promised to them and visit their matriarch. So Abraham is doing this on faith. Now, I've listened to some sermons and, and, and listen, read some things on this. A lot of people think, tend to think that Abraham and Sarah were like waiting for this promise to happen now. And then, oh, Sarah died. Oh, man, and look how Abraham is so faithful. He's still stuck to the promise. Abraham knew they were going to die and not see the entire land of Canaan filled with their descendants. Come on. He's already over a century old. He had Isaac in his old age. There's no way. He's lucky if he sees Isaac's kids, right? He knew this wasn't going to be fulfilled. In fact, God told him that 400 years that Israel was going to be enslaved in Egypt, God told Abraham that. He gave him that preview, right? He gave him the spoiler. Hey, I'm going to do this great thing with your people. I'm going to, they're going to fill up the land, but for four centuries they're going to be stuck in a land not their own, and they're going to be servants to a people not their own. But then after that, I'm going to bring them out. So Abraham knows that this is centuries away, but he still knows it's coming. He still believes in the reality of it, even though it's real far off, that it's going to happen even if I'm not here. This is what's going to happen because God said so. And so I want the my people to be able to visit their matriarch here. The reason why that's important, guys, is not because, you know, we don't draw from this lesson. Now, make sure you talk with the funeral home and make plans because it happens to all of us. And last minute, you don't want to be last minute negotiating with people. Abraham is last minute negotiating with people and you don't want to get stuck in that. That's not what this passage is about. This passage isn't about make sure there's a casket or make sure there's a lot or make sure you prepare stuff. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about the promise that God gave to Abraham. That's exactly what the passage is about. And if it didn't have to do with the promise, you wouldn't hear of it. Don't you read these stories and wish you had more details? You know, oh, what happened to this guy or what happened to that? And you don't get the details because the author is just focused on continuing this whole narrative about the promise and everything that doesn't quite relate to the promise he leaves out. So why do we have an entire chapter on him bearing Sarah? It has everything to do with the promise. He believed in the promise, and because of his belief in the promise, that affected how he acted now, today, in our lives. And so the way in which Abraham dealt with Sarah's death was to cling to the promise. He believed that promise was going to happen, and that effect, if he didn't believe that promise, he would have just gone back to Haran or buried her anywhere. It wouldn't have really mattered. It mattered because of the promise. And what you see in Abraham's life, that's how he lived. He lived and did his thing because of the promise that he believed in. He didn't fly by the seat of his pants. He clung to that promise, and that promise affected the decisions that he made. But it's more than just the physical land. I mean, it's amazing. He's believing. He's looking around him. It's like if somebody were to tell you, you know, a couple generations from now, this entire Chicagoland area is going to just be full of your people. I mean, is that difficult to believe? We look at Abraham, we're like, oh, oh, he believed the promise. Imagine, somebody told you, if somebody came to me and said, a few generations from now, all of Chicago, all of them, their last name is going to be O'Neill. Well, what do you mean, near north side, south side, all all of them, all, they're all going to be Red Sox fans. There's not going to be any Cubs. White Sox would have been folded. You know, it would have just, it's just going to be all impossible to believe right we have to imagine the weight of the promise that god is telling abraham and telling him to leave and go to that place and that place is going to become your and then he believes it to the point where he wants to purchase a lot so that they can visit their matriarch right he's believing that promise but 
he's not only believing that promise in a physical way. In other words, he's not just going, ah, woe is me. I wish I would have been able to see it. It would have been great if I was around to see it, but eh, that stinks. Well, at least I got the promise started and someone else will get to enjoy it. No. He knows that there's something beyond the grave that he gets to enjoy. He knows that there's something back there beyond death. He knows Sarah is not just gone. He knows he's going to see Sarah again. He knows that they're going to join with the Lord somewhere. Now, they don't have a perfect picture of what it is. We have a, sometimes a bad picture of what it is. We've got wings. We've got these glowing rings floating over our heads. We all play harps. We float around on clouds. It's super boring. We just stare at each other. You know, it's hard for us to imagine because we can barely have a conversation without sin happening somewhere in our mind. What is it like to have a sinless conversation? What is it like to, to, to play sports and, and not be sinful, right? I saw a comic strip of, uh, it said hockey in heaven and all these guys had the wings and the halos and they're just, oh, pardon me, excuse me, did you want to go first? I'm sorry. You, here's the lane, you go right ahead. No, it's my, you want to shoot the puck? Go ahead, I'll t- my turn. Just poking fun at how in the world do you play hockey in heaven? You got to sin, you know? It's hard to imagine. They had a very rudimentary understanding of a very vague. But we need to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And there's a passage in Hebrews, and we're going to put it up on the screen. Did we get that, Carl? We're going to put this up on the screen. It's, it's, it's quite a few verses, but I want to look at this. The author of Hebrews is shedding light for us on what else was going on in Abraham's mind and heart. Now, this is called the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. It's going down. Remember these guys, the old heroes of the faith, why they had faith and how heroic they were with it. When he talks about Abraham, he says that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that, was to receive, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, right? Big faith. He doesn't know where he's going. God's going to point it out to him. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Pause. Did Abraham ever enter into a a huge city? Like, what, What is he referring to? Abraham didn't get to receive the promise, but he still received it. Beyond death. Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. In other words, a place not built by human hands. A place that's spiritual. A place that is otherworldly. He didn't have an exact picture of what it was. He knew it was a place. He knew people were going there that had a relationship with God. It's a dwelling place, so it must be like a city or something. Vague, but there. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants. He was good as dead because he couldn't produce offspring. But descendants were born from him. As many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
So, so check this. They weren't just strangers and exiles in Canaan. They're strangers and exiles on earth. So that death becomes a doorway to where they're no longer strangers on earth, but now they're home citizens, natives to that city that God builds. You'll see how the author switched it there. You expect them to say they weren't native to Canaan. They were exiles there, but no, it's, it's earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. He's not talking about Canaan. He's talking about a spiritual promised land. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That is the, that is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise that we're tracking in Abraham. All right, let me bring it together for you. God promised Abraham an actual land, right? A physical land, actual, you can map it out, okay? You can Google map it right now, the Fertile Crescent right there. He promised this actual geographical earth, earthly land. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that Abraham wasn't, ah, oh, shucks, I'm not going to get to see it because I'm dying, because he was looking ahead to the spiritual reality that that physical promise represented. Heaven, God's resting place. That's what solidified his faith. Now he wanted, he knew, looked ahead and made sure his physical descendants are going to be in a physical land and it's going to be a physical place. But looking ahead, seeing this whole thing is a metaphor of what I'm really in exile from. And really I'm in exile from being in relationship with God. That exile started with Adam and Eve. When they bit the fruit, boom, they're exiled. Now they're just wandering on, on the earth until they can be in connection with God again. Jesus came to redeem us so that he can connect that bridge to give us that passport we need to board that plane called death so that on the other side of it, when we walk out of that terminal, we're with God and not somewhere else separated from him. Guys, this is, this is Christianity 101, but we need to see it in these pages because Abraham did. Abraham saw the spiritual reality that the promised land represented. Let me, let me, let me drop something else. Look up again at verse 2. Remember it said Sarah was 127 years old and then Sarah died at Kiriath Arba and then you get a little parenthesis there and says that is Hebron, right? And that happens again at the end of the chapter in verse 19. Why is the author doing that? Because the author is keeping his audience in mind and his audience doesn't remember Kiriath Arba. Who's the audience for the book of Genesis, the original audience for the book of Genesis? Well, Jesus called the whole first five books of the Bible the book of Moses. And so scholars quibble and argue about Moses couldn't have written the whole thing because some things happened that were post-Moses. Moses was the main author, and there were some additions from the Israelite people as it went along. That's fine. But God gave this revelation to Moses. Moses recorded it for his people. When would Moses have given it to his people for them to read? Probably post-Egypt, but pre-promised land. You have a group of people that have been slaves for 400 years and they're finally going to take that promised land. They're finally looking ahead to that land that was promised to Abraham and they're reading this. And they're going, Kiriath Arba, where's that? Well, you know, Hebron. Oh, it's called Hebron now. Okay? It's like if somebody moves to Chicago and, and you know, they're calling it the Willis Tower and we say Sears and they're like, what? The, what's Sears? And then you go, Psh, psh. No. Well, it was called that before, and it's not called that now, right? That's why he puts that parenthesis there. It was called Kiriath Arba back then, 
But now you're a people that recognize it by the word Hebron. That gives us a clue that it reminds us that these people are on the verge of fulfilling that physical promise. But once again, that entire narrative of the Israelites is a metaphor for our spiritual journey. The Bible refers to that metaphor in the New Testament over and over again to speak of the time in Egypt as a time of enslavement, a time of bondage. This is when you didn't know Christ. This is when you couldn't help it but sin. All you were doing was stomping out hay and straw to make bricks because that's all you knew how to do. Sin, commit sin, you know, displease the Lord, disobey. That's all you knew how to do. You couldn't do anything about it. Jesus rescues you. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the real Moses. He pulls you out of the bondage. He brings you out of the darkness. But not immediately into the promised land. Right? Because the promised land represents heaven. The promised land represents that, that city designed by God. We got that from Hebrews 11. The promised land represents uh, eternal dwelling with the Lord. So where are we now? The wilderness. We're on a journey. We're exiles. We're, not, we're citizens of, of the kingdom of heaven, but we're not there. We're here. We're, we're foreigners. Right? We're aliens. We're strangers. And during this journey, during this time, the temptation is just to get used to the desert. To invest all our stock in desert dwelling. Because it's all we know. Some of us go, man, this stinks. We're walking around and there's rocks. It's hard to get water. We're waiting for a miracle. Okay, water came out of a rock, but what about next week? Some of us think, man, I think it was better back in Egypt. It was better when I could do whatever I want. I can go clubbing. I can go with the girls. I can drink whatever I want. I won't get judged on Facebook. Everybody would just know, hey, I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. I do whatever I want. But I'm, no, I'm here in this wilderness, and there's expectations. There's morals. I've got to be nice to people. It's tough. Now, why do I lay all that out? Because I want us to see that the way Abraham dealt with death is how we need to deal with death. We view death as an end. We view death as an end. And some of us are savvy enough to try to set up our kids. Like Abraham was doing. He was thinking ahead to the kids and their kids and their kids. And they were going to want to visit grandma, right? And some of us are savvy enough to do that. But what Abraham was really clinging to wasn't just some plot of land. He was clinging to a heavenly promise. Meaning that Abraham viewed death as a beginning and not an end. And guys, what, what difference does that make? If you have two people that are pretty much the same, but one of them sees death as an end, and one of them sees death as a beginning, what's it? All the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. If you were getting ready for a trip, you were going to go on a journey. You're going to go on vacation, or maybe you're going to go on a hike. Okay? You prepare for the beginning of that trip. You prepare for it. Between now and when that trip begins, you're packing your bags. You're, uh, and you're being judicious about what you pack. You might even tell your spouse, you know, you, you, you know why are you packing all that? We're only going for this many days. Or what, you're not going to need that when we get there, or they're going to have that when we get there. And so you're being judicious about you. You don't pack everything. In fact, the person that is so nervous about the trip, they're trying to pack everything. They're, they're going to have a hard time going on that trip, right? They come with 18, uh, you know, luggages, for a two-day journey, 
Because what if I need that and what if I need this and I'm not sure which thing I'm going to wear, right? But we pack judiciously because we know that all we're doing right now is we're getting ready to start that journey. Now, everything else can wait. We're going to start that journey together. The Christian life is getting our things in order so we can start our journey. This isn't our journey. This is the beginning. This is, this is just a, a, pre, a prelude to when the real beginning starts. So death is a doorway. It's not a stop. It's a beginning. It's not an end. That will radically change how you pack, if you pack, what you're thinking about. Right? Not waiting to the last minute so when the bridegroom comes, you're like those virgins that didn't have oil in their lamp. Oh, I, I, yeah, like I believed it, but I wasn't really paying attention to it. Sorry. Versus being someone who's a good and faithful servant. This is coming. Either the Lord comes back or I die. One of those two is going to happen. And when those happen, that's the beginning of the real journey. I need to prepare for that journey now. And guys, I think a lot of us, we scramble trying to make thing comfortable for ourselves in the wilderness if we were just look at our calendar and think what what are all the things that i'm doing that are kingdom oriented that are that are that are investments for eternity versus the things that are just kind of they're not necessarily kingdom things they're just they're fun or they help me make money or they do this or that but they don't have a necessary connection to the kingdom i think we can scan our lives and go okay here's the luggage this is, this is too heavy. Like, what can I not, what am I packing that really doesn't belong in this bag so I can be prepared for the real journey, for the beginning of that journey? I think there's a lot of things we might snip out of our schedule or pull out of the bag and say, you know what, this is fun. It just robs a lot of time, right? It takes a lot of time from investing in my kids. Investing in my kids, is that eternal impact? huge eternal impact so let's raise the investment and the time i spend with my child and let's lower the time spent on the golf course let's lower the time spent watching sports and raise the time spent playing sports with a couple of guys that need to know jesus because guys if you're thinking right now how old am i okay here's how much time i have left Eh. you don't know the time you have left. You've got a boarding pass, and you're just waiting for the speaker to come on. Boarding, Lucas O'Neill, that's when you go, not on your time. And that's a difficult reality. That's a difficult reality, but it's made more difficult if the, your only hope is this life. The boarding call comes, and you're like, oh my goodness, my fantasy football team. I didn't get to switch the player. Boarding call, oh my goodness, I, we, didn't get to, we didn't get to, you know, go on this super huge trip that was going to cost, you know, $10,000. We didn't get to go on that. No, you want it to be boarding call, oh man, I didn't follow up with Frank. When I gave him that Bible verse, I want to know if that impacted him. Boarding call, oh man, I was going to go on this missions trip. See, the things that we're investing in, I don't want you guys to go home and go, okay, all we're supposed to do all day is constantly evangelize and constantly think holy things and only listen to, you know, Christian music and always just be worshiping in the car and, you know, buy the cheapest car possible and give the rest to missions. Listen, we all have to kind of weigh 
right? We have to weigh how the Lord is calling us to obey. But I'm guessing that some of us are a little bit heavy in our luggage with things that don't really belong. And maybe some of us have things that should be in there that aren't really there. Okay, when the, when, when the, when the church, not just CFC, but the church, right? And for us at CFC, we're trying to advance kingdom work. How involved are you? How involved are you? When there's time for action and you're thinking, I don't really have time for that. Why don't you have time for that? What else is filling up your time? What's choking you? What's, what are all those heavy things on your plate that are suffocating things like evangelism? Things like discipling someone else. Right? Abraham acted now according to a promise that's going to happen later. We're the same. If we really believe that this promise is going to happen and we're literally going to stand before the Lord and get an account of how well we prepared for the beginning of that journey, how well we packed for the beginning of that journey, there's going to be an accounting. He's going to go through our luggage like the guy at the the airport line, right? He's going to go through your stuff. Let me see what you got here. Okay? If we know that's going to happen, then we're going to do things now that match that and not just the American dream. Not just pastime. Not just filling up the wilderness with distractions because it's so tough to live the Christian life. Let me just kind of distract myself with a bunch of fun and stuff until the Lord comes back and it's like, okay, we made it. No, we're on a mission. We're supposed to be active. We're supposed to be getting things done, right? Because the time is short. And so much more can happen if more of us raised our seriousness about it 5%, 10%. And notice I'm not just talking about giving, right? I'm not just talking about giving. And I don't look at the numbers. So when I look across, I don't look at levels of numbers, right? But maybe it's giving. Maybe it's giving time. Maybe it's connecting with the growth group. You haven't connected with the growth group yet. Maybe it's talking to someone about Jesus. You look back at the past year of your life. Have you talked to someone about Jesus? How about two years? How about five? How about ten? When is the last time you sat with somebody and explained to them the gospel so that they could join this journey? Guys, that's what we need to be maximizing our time with. That's what we need to be spending our time doing, concentrating on, and we're raising our kids, spending time with our kids. Teach them that. Teach them that so that when we're gone, those kids carry the torch of knowing how to live in this wilderness, not wishing we were back in Egypt. That stuff is dark. That was, that was slavery. Longing for the promised land, but working hard now and being faithful until we get there. That's the Christian life. I want to ask the worship team to come forward. And as I say those words and we close the service, I'm hoping and trusting that the Spirit is working in you. And bringing to your mind some specific applications. What are some things I can do to kind of uh, trim the weight in the luggage? Or, or what are the things that I need to be doing that I'm not doing now? Um, we all have ways in which we can be a little more fervent. A little more uh, invested in kingdom work. And a little less invested in things that, you know, they're fun, they're nice, they're not sinful. But they may be distracting. Or they may be filling up time that you could be using to do things that we need to be doing as disciples.